Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Um, I want to begin by reading two verses from John's Gospel. The first is found in chapter 6 and verse 63. The Lord Jesus says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The second is found in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thank you for coming out to church this morning. We live in a world that has replaced true community with social media. So it's lovely to be close together once again as a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. Now, having welcomed you in that way, you might reasonably expect me to focus this talk on the Christians in the room. However, if my brothers and sisters will forgive me, the talk I'm about to give uh, will be mainly addressed to the non-Christians in the room. When it comes to the topic we consider this morning, it might seem that there is an unbridgeable gap, a gulf between the Christian and the non-Christian. Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but on the other hand, most non-Christians think that the Bible is a mere collection of human documents. Now, that difference of opinion seems to make it impossible for us to have a sensible conversation. Some years ago, I was at a wedding trying to survive the incredible awkwardness of the period between the end of the service and the start of the meal. And I fell into conversation with a lovely old Christian gentleman who had a son who had walked away from his Christian profession. The old man knew that I splash around in the shallow end of apologetics, so he asked me what he should do. This is what he said. He said, I just decided to begin by saying that the Bible is the Word of God. I made that my starting point. And I wonder what you think of that as a tactic. Perhaps you've tried to have conversations with a loved one across that huge gulf. But because you're each standing on completely different ground, it's impossible to make much progress. Two weeks ago, I set out the Christian's claim about the Bible. You can read it, that 20-word definition, on the screen. Ollie Neal is in Dublin this weekend, so you're getting to see the crooks graphic design approach, which is simply words on a screen. There will be no haunting black and white images of orphans and dead pigeons. I really hope Ollie's not listening on Zoom. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that was the 20-word definition uh, that I put on the screen. I made no attempt in that first talk to defend the claim. I just stated it. When all the facts are known, the Bible, as originally given, will prove itself to be free from factual error. The Christian church from its earliest days has stood firm on that claim. It's not a recent invention. Now, in our study today, it's my job to persuade you that Christians don't simply believe that 20-word statement as a brute fact. I fully understand the frustration that some non-Christians have and they can feel because at first sight, it looks as if Christians are trapped in a, a vicious circle. I believe that Christianity is true because the Bible tells me that Christianity is true. And because I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible to be completely true. That sort of argument is completely circular. Now, one possible way we might possibly escape from the vicious circle is to place our trust in archaeology. So, we could walk slowly through the text of the Bible and list out all the historical events that it records. 
and then we could dig up the Middle East and search for evidence that these historical events actually occurred. Now, Christians are delighted to have that sort of conversation because the data that has come in over the past 150 years has corroborated a lot of the historical claims made in Scripture. But the tactic has an obvious flaw. When I get to heaven, it is unlikely that I will say to God, Aha! I knew you existed because the archaeologists told me you did. Look once again at the 20-word definition on the screen. It concedes that not all the facts are in yet. In the year 2021, there are still gaps in our knowledge. There are still tensions between the interpretation of geological data and the interpretation of biblical narrative. So we can't bridge the gulf between the Christian and the non-Christian by placing our trust in archaeology or geological theories. Have a look at the four-step argument on the screen. This is my suggested way of bridging the gulf between non-Christian and Christian. I'm going to argue over the next 20 minutes that by following these four logical steps, we can arrive at the conclusion, rationally, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, free from all factual error. It turns out that the ministry committee, with its usual cunning, has already brought us through that first step. Last week, we were privileged to listen to and watch Dr. Peter Williams, who's principal of Tyndale House. Peter is an academic at the leading edge of biblical scholarship today. And he gave us a whole set of arguments that support the first step, that the gospel records give us an accurate record of what Jesus Christ said and did. So if you missed last week's service, uh, you can either watch it again on YouTube or read his little book called Can We Trust the Gospels? Now, the important thing with this first step is that it doesn't require a non-Christian to accept that the Bible is inspired or error-free at this stage. All you need to do is accept that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accurate. Careful scholarship has proven to my satisfaction at any rate, that the gospel records are eyewitness accounts or they're based on careful analysis of eyewitness accounts. There is a mass, a mountain of data to support that claim. But even more significantly, the four different accounts all point to one source, a genius teacher whose moral insights are unsurpassed in human history. And there is a raft of excellent scholarship now available that deals with the criticism that the copied manuscripts contain errors. So that was all last week's business. But before I leave that step, there was one issue that Peter didn't raise last week, which somebody subsequently raised with me. What is a thoughtful non-Christian to make of stories about, I don't know, water being turned into wine, uh, or people being healed from blindness, as we were thinking about earlier? What, in other words, are we to make of the miracle stories? Christianity is founded on the idea that the supernatural exists. <laughs> Obviously, we say there is more to reality than can be explained by naturalism. So if someone closes off their mind to the possibility of miracles, then they won't get very far in engaging with Christianity. But on the other hand, you don't just have to accept them. Except from the get-go. Jeez, that appalling Americanism. I always counsel non-Christians simply to reserve judgment when they read miracles in the Bible for the first time. You see, the question, can a miracle happen, is not a scientific question. It's a worldview question. It's a theological question. Now, that probably sounds as if I've sidestepped the question, but I haven't. We need to begin by understanding what Christians mean by the term miracle. Miracles aren't magic. A miracle is an exceptional event injected into nature by God but he always does so for a moral purpose. 
So miracles, the Bible says, are like signposts that point to a theological truth. Now, if that's what a miracle is, then you can only form a judgment about it once you understand the theological context in which it's claimed to have occurred. So there's a fair bit of learning involved in all that before understanding can begin. And someone who's just opened the Bible for the very first time cannot, by definition, have grasped the biblical worldview. They haven't had a chance yet to see its coherence or its explanatory power. So until all that understanding is in place, just reserve judgment on the truthfulness of the miracle. It's the compelling rationality of the overall Christian worldview which eventually gives the reader reasonable grounds for believing that miracles actually happen. Okay, so having explained that point of detail, I think we can say that we have reasonable grounds for taking the first step. The gospel records give us an accurate record of what Jesus Christ said and did. The second step is to become convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Earlier this morning, I read through John's Gospel in anticipation of this talk. And I did my best to read it through the eyes of a non-Christian. In other words, I asked myself, what would someone reading this material for the very first time, what would they make of Jesus Christ? And three big things struck me. The first is that Jesus could not have been invented. People who make that claim are thinking like Christians. Let me explain what I mean. In other words, they think it's reasonable to see Jesus as an ideal. But at the time, Christ wasn't anyone's ideal. The disciples were looking for a political Messiah. And when they found out that Jesus was going to lay down his life, they all ran away. The Romans thought that the gospel message was laughable. The Apostle Paul was met with sneering laughter when he tried to explain it to the Greeks. Christ was no one's ideal in the ancient world. So it's just unreasonable to suggest that Jesus Christ is an invention. His values and goals were utterly alien to the world in which he lived. Now, over 2,000 years of history, as we all know, those values of Christ transformed the world. So today, we think it natural that all human beings have equal moral worth, for example. That would have made a Roman laugh. But at the time, you see, the moral teaching of Christ just seemed ludicrous. So he could not have been invented. My second observation from reading John's Gospel is that Christ's claim to be the Son of God is strangely compelling. I get a bit wearied by woolly-minded liberals, is there any other type, who try to reduce Jesus to be a moral teacher. People who say that sort of stuff, I think, have never actually read the Gospels because nearly everything Jesus said and did is premised on his unique self-understanding as the Son of God. Imagine that in conversation in the foyer after the service, I casually dropped into the discussion that I believe myself to be the Son of God. He would immediately edge towards the nearest exit or ask a passing psychiatrist to take me away in an ambulance. So what is it about the Lord Jesus that makes his claim so strangely compelling. There isn't a hint of megalomania or egotism. He's gentle and lowly of heart. But there is this understated majesty, a sort of moral grandeur that forces us to make a decision about him. How could the greatest moralist who has ever lived be so wildly self-deceived? It just doesn't make sense to acknowledge the depth of his moral insights into the human condition and at the same time suggest that he's a lunatic. 
My final observation, which came about this morning, it's about the truly, it's the truly unique thing about Jesus Christ. The thing that makes him different from every other figure in history. He actually meets my needs. You see, we aren't disinterested observers when it comes to the deep issues of life. We aren't solving a Sudoku puzzle here. Jesus Christ raises issues that cut us to the core. We all long for moral integrity. We know, as a, as a basic thing, we know that kindness and truthfulness and patience are valuable things. We know that cruelty and betrayal are morally wrong. But we also know that we are morally wrong. We are sinners. We have fallen short of what we know, and we, we know ourselves to be right. Now, here's the thing. Down through the centuries, there have been hundreds of moral teachers who have taught us what is good and what is bad. But none of them ever lifted a finger to help us become good. The unique thing about Jesus Christ is that he actually meets our need. He's like bread when we are hungry. He provides us with forgiveness and cleansing and healing. He offers to place the very life of God within us so that we undergo real heart-level transformation. Now, up to now in step two, we've only been thinking about the insights we get into Jesus Christ from the four gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But a really interesting thing happens when we pan the camera back for a moment. If you read through the rest of the Bible, just as you might at this stage read a well-regarded newspaper, you discover that Christ fits into the rest of the Bible like a plug into a socket. The Bible doesn't start with Jesus. It first sets out what we might call the Christian worldview. In other words, it examines really deep questions like, what actually is a human being? Why does life contain this strange mix of goodness and evil? Is the human story heading anywhere? What will happen to me when I die? And once the Bible has defined that problem space, if you like, then Christ comes to solve the basic problems which beset us all. Now, I find that a really compelling argument. Because it means that Christianity wasn't made up after Jesus' life on earth was over. You see, some people say that the Apostle Paul is the real genius here and that he constructed this elaborate story around the life of Jesus and that is what we now call Christianity. But in fact, the big story of Christianity was laid down 800 years before Christ came to earth. So Christianity cannot be reduced to a post-rationalization of Christ's life. A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, yet become convinced that the claims Jesus makes about himself are true. But a Christian is also someone who believes themselves to be a sinner in need of salvation. The Christian has humbly asked Christ for forgiveness and healing, and to use the language of Jesus himself, they then have been born from above. In other words, they've received God's very own life into their personality. And that leads us to step three. If I now believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then I will treat Scripture the way Christ treats Scripture. That's, this is the crucial step in the whole argument. It is a simple fact that Jesus Christ treated the Old Testament Scriptures as the inspired and error-free Word of God. He treated them as God-breathed and authoritative. I'm just going to give you one example from Matthew chapter 19. Uh, he's being asked his views on divorce. 
And the Lord replies, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, notice the significance of that reply. Jesus said, Not only that God made Adam and Eve, not only that Genesis 2 is a proper account of the matter, but that the words of Genesis 2 come to us with the authority of divine speech. Many of his arguments hinge on the detailed chronology of events in the Old Testament. He regarded Adam and Job and Jonah as real historical figures. One of his favorite sayings was, It stands written. There's simply no doubt that the Lord Jesus regarded the Old Testament as the inspired and authoritative word of God. But what about the New Testament, we might ask? Well, Christ, amazingly, claims equal authority with the Old Testament. Think of one of his most common refrains. But I say unto you. Time and time again he argues like this. The Old Testament says this, but I also say unto you. In John 12 he says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's in that same scene that he gives authority to his apostles to write what we call the New Testament. He explicitly claims that their work will be inspired by the Spirit of Truth. So that logic forces us inexorably to a conclusion. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if he is truth incarnate, then I must treat the Scriptures the way that Christ treated the Scriptures. I must receive them with reverence as the inspired and error-free Word of God. And I do that as an act of obedience to Christ. It is very common, those of you who are familiar with the waves running through evangelicalism at the moment, it is common to hear people say today that the doctrine of inerrancy is an invention, a hermeneutic, an invention of the 20th century. That is not true. It's not just one way of interpreting the scriptures. By the time we get to step three, we see that it is an act of obedience to treat the scriptures as Christ treated them, even if we don't quite know why. Now, we could justify, justifiably stop at that point, because we have demonstrated that the gulf I talked about at the start can be bridged. By taking these first three steps, anyone can become convinced that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired Word of God, free from factual error. So the Christian's faith in the Scripture is not an irrational leap in the dark. It's not the acceptance of a brute fact. It's the destination reached at the end of a rational inquiry. At the back of my bank card, there is a small silver square. At first sight, it's just a simple piece of reflective metal. But when I tilt it, I suddenly see a hologram, the etched figure of a hovering dove. Now, you can't see it just by looking on the surface. But a discerning viewer who looks at the silver square in the right way can discern the artwork that lies underneath the surface. The fourth and final step in our argument for an error-free Bible is called discerning the divine author. And my story about the dove hologram is particularly apt because behind the human authors like Isaiah and Amos and John and Paul, we can discern, after years of study perhaps, we can discern the Spirit of God who breathed through those human authors to give us the perfect Word of God. If you talk to older Christians who have studied the Bible for years, they will all tell you the same thing. They've all caught glimpses of the organic unity of Scripture. 
These apparently strange and culturally remote stories from the Old Testament, they enrich the imagination. They bring color and depth to the abstract truths that we encounter in the New Testament. Now, why is that so? Well, modern neurologists will tell us the human brain has been designed to process narrative. And so I don't find it in the least surprising that God has given us so much narrative to build truth into our minds. And when I talk about truth, I don't just mean concepts and ideas. Above all, I'm talking about the truth, about God. The Bible has been constructed to reveal the moral grandeur of God's character. And if we read it and study it in the right way, we gain insights that are truly breathtaking. But that point raises a question. What do I mean by the right way? Let's go back to our bank card for a moment. When you get home and pull out your bank card and to see if the preacher was talking nonsense, uh, I can almost guarantee that you will first see the hologram when you raise the card just above your eye line and then tilt it slightly. And that visual metaphor helps me explain the right way to read Scripture. You see, we must adopt the right posture towards Scripture. Some people set the Bible to the side. They only glance at it occasionally. I'll never forget a, a young student once saying to me, Jim, I used to go to a Bible teaching church like yours, but now I encounter God through music. And I said to him, Pete, there are so many things wrong with that sentence, I don't know where to begin. It's important to be gracious. Then there are other people who sit over Scripture. They sit over it in judgment, deciding what bits they like and what bits they don't. In fact, they scrub out the bits they don't like and reinterpret the bits they, they leave to say what they wanted to say. Now, here's the thing. You will never discern the divine author if you adopt either of those positions, if you sit over it or you set it to the side. We must allow the Bible to interrogate us so we sit under its authority. And only then, when we treat it as a holy thing, can we learn genuinely new and deep things about God. Now, we need to be really careful with our language here. The Apostle Paul calls the Bible the Holy Scriptures, and that is true. But we do not worship a book. The Bible is not God. The Bible is the Word of God. So when we read it, we hear God speak. But we must treat his words as holy. In the fifth chapter of Daniel, we encounter the story of a ghastly, decadent king called Belshazzar. He was holding a party. And he thought it would be funny and daring to take the holy vessels of God, the golden vessels that had been used in temple worship back in Jerusalem, he thought it would be funny to use them as drinking cups for his guests. It would be such a laugh. But the laughter died away, as you know, when a hand appeared and wrote some words on the wall. Many, many, tekel parson. Those words pronounced Belshazzar's judgment. I say this with the measure of solemnity. Today, a lot of liberal scholars treat the Bible the way Belshazzar treated the temple vessels. They regard it as a profane, common thing. They use it for cheap political purposes. Well, the writing is on the wall for people like that. God will not allow his holy scriptures to be profane. Here at Crescent Church, we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. We treat Scripture the way the Lord Jesus treated Scripture. And over the years, as a community, we have discerned the divine author who sits behind the human authors. God the Holy Spirit, who has crafted this collection of books to produce the perfect Word of God. And by his illuminating work in the believer's heart, the Holy Spirit can take words on a page 
and bring them into the mind as the very voice of God. Those years of study and teaching have convinced us as a body of believers that the Bible, all the Bible, has been breathed out by God. Being convinced of the doctrine of inspiration, it follows as a matter of logical necessity that the Bible is free from error. We stand in the orthodox tradition of the church since its earliest days and say that God is always truthful. The Bible is God's word and therefore the Bible is wholly true. It is free from factual error. As Richard said, next week we will uh, endure a question and answer session. So please use the Google form that was sent out on the WhatsApp group and, or if, if, if you don't have access to that, I will be hanging around here at the front to write your question down or just come and tell me it after the service is over. Ollie Neal will be back next week to grill me on all the apparent contradictions in the Bible. But for now we're done, and I'll hand back to Richard. Thank you for your courteous attention.